the rest of us, if you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, please turn to Matthew chapter 17. But also, as you're turning to Matthew chapter 17, please put a finger in Mark chapter 9, as we're going to be turning there also at one, one point in, in time. So, so find those. But uh, today's message is entitled, The Transfiguration. In Matthew 17, and in Mark, and in Luke, you can find these sections in there. But the fact of the matter is, is I want to give you a word of encouragement today. I think all of us need a word of encouragement from time to time. I know that I do. Uh, my wife does a great job with being an encourager for me, and perhaps you have the gift of encouragement. And I, I, would, I would ask you, if you do, encourage somebody today, will you please? But the disciples are no different than us. We need encouragement from time to time, and the disciples do too just like we do. Peter just confessed that Jesus was the Lord, right? So if you remember, if you've been here over the last times, or if you want to go home and review this, Peter just said, you know, you're the Christ. And Jesus was like, yeah, man, God the Father told you that because men can't figure that out on their own, right? I I paraphrase. Uh, And then he tells them the Messiah is actually going to die. And you can imagine what they might be thinking about this. We thought the Messiah was supposed to come in on a white horse, right? Kick open the doors like we talked about. We thought the Messiah was going to be taking over Rome and setting up the Davidic kingdom like, like the past. And he says, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to go and die. And so Jesus is about to do something. He's about to give them hope before they go into the dark. Jesus is about to show them who he is to, to really nail to the wall Peter's confession. So as they, as they move forward... They can move forward in hope, looking forward to who Jesus is and who he will be. And I don't know if you're anything like me, as you look around the world today, perhaps you need hope about who Jesus is and who he will be and who we will be in Christ also. So let's go to the text, but before we do, let's pray. Will you please pray with me? God, our Father in heaven, in our world of darkness, you are light. In a time of travail, you are peace. At a time when we walk through the dark despair of the valley of the shadow of death, you are the way, the hope, and the light. As we gather here today to meditate on Matthew 17, and we see your glory made manifest, we pray that you would bring us fresh power to praise you. In your divine wisdom, you showed these three disciples what they would need to see to carry them onward, to run the race, to obtain the prize. Lord, it's our prayer also that we might be transformed even as Jesus is and was and is now. That we might gaze anew upon our glorious Savior this morning. That by beholding the glory of the Son, we might see the glory of the Father and upon seeing the glory of the Father, that we would be driven further, faster, and more faithful into fellowship with your Holy Spirit. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. So as we look at this transfiguration, there's three things that I want to really uh, highlight to you about this that I think is a word of of hope and encouragement to you. And it's firstly, the King in his glory. Uh, You're going to see a picture here today of the King in his glory. So as you look at Matthew 17, 1 through uh, 13 here, this is what God's Word says. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, we don't know why that he took just these three. Uh, John will later talk about himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. You know, it's pretty humble testimony, self-testimony of that, I I know. But uh, anyway, so these three are in the inner circle. Uh, We can understand maybe why he took Peter, because we know Peter's a loudmouth. 
but anyway, uh, and they, they were trans, and he was transfigured before them. So Jesus was transfigured. This is this word metamorphosis, right? This is this internal change. So, so picture in your minds, if you can, this, and I guarantee you that you can't. You can just long to look forward to this someday. He was transfigured with them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared with him, with them, Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, as we pause here for a minute, just to kind of look in more detail here, I want to tell you, if you're a note taker, you can write down these. If you have paper copy, you already have this, but Exodus 24, Deuteronomy 18, and then Exodus 34 is all, I think, what was going through Peter's mind when he spoke. We tend to give Peter not so much credit and think he just kind of shoots from the hip and then aims later, right? But, but I do think there's reasons for why Peter is thinking this way. So if you go to Exodus 24, uh, he says that the Lord uh, said to Moses, come up to meet me on the mountain and wait there. I may give you the tablets of stone. So this is where he's going to get the Ten Commandments. He goes up on the mountain, and then later in that same section, it says Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And then on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So it took them six days to get here. They go up on this. The glory of the Lord overshadows them. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain. And in the sight of the people of Israel, Moses entered the cloud and went up onto the mountain. Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And so this is why Peter is thinking, maybe we should build some tents. Right? Maybe we should have a place where we're going to stay. We're not going to be up here for a while. In Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, that section, uh, it says that God's going to raise up a prophet like Moses from among his brothers. Pointing here, obviously, to the fulfillment, obviously, of Jesus. In verse 18, it says, He will raise them up, a prophet like you, from among your brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and you shall speak to them all that I command him. So as we think about this, the, the closest thing I think maybe we can imagine in our minds when this happens to Jesus is if you're a Michigander and you've seen a fresh fallen snow and then the next morning there's not a cloud in the sky and you have to drive to work with that blinding white snow or midday noontime fresh fallen snow and even that pales in comparison to Jesus. This week I was doing some work and I had one of those headlamps perhaps you know it kind of straps around and you can click it and it does different things well, I didn't know if it had batteries in it or not, so I did exactly what any intelligent human being would do. I looked directly at the bulb and then turned it on. And then very quickly, was completely blinded. I, I shut it off over here, and then, and then I had this unique experience, and it was awesome that it was in this week where we're doing this text, because what happened to my vision? Do you guys know? Have, have any of you made the same intelligent decision? there's a blind spot in my vision. There's a bluish-green floating orb that travels everywhere that I look, and every time I blink, it turns a fluorescent blue and then changes to a hue of a darker green. And so that's what happened to my vision. I can't imagine what happened to these disciples as they look upon Jesus' glory, but I can tell you his brilliance was absolutely amazing and awesome in the sense of the word awesome. Inspiring awe. And so he's, they're there with him as Jesus reveals his glory. And this word metamorphosis, think of a caterpillar. As they go into the cocoon, they're in the cocoon, and then they emerge from the cocoon as a butterfly, or usually a moth. We always like to say it's a butterfly, but usually it's a moth, right? 
But the fact of the matter is, is that whatever they had, whatever they were going to be, was innate in their very inner being, and we couldn't see it until it emerged. This is the God-man, fully God, fully man, with the glory of God hidden inside of him while he walked this earth. And this is the first time, the first time in all of Scripture, Matthew records it, that we actually get a, a glimpse of who Jesus truly is, not how he reveals himself to humanity, but the glory of the Father that was so intrinsic to his nature that unlike Moses, if, if you go to Exodus 34, if you want to, it says that when he went up there and he was within the presence of God, that his skin of his face would actually start to shine. Now, some people say, oh, that's just a sunburn from being around the heat. No, no, no. I think scripture is clear with the words that it uses. I think his, he was actually giving off some kind of a glow. And so Moses comes down from the mountain, and the people are afraid of Moses because since he was in the glory of God, God's glory is so overwhelming and enveloping and some other adjective for that, that Moses couldn't help but to absorb some of that and shine it back from his faith. And, and, and so what they actually had him do was he actually had to put a veil over his face so that he wouldn't freak people out. So can you imagine? They were actually doing masks way back in the Old Testament. Can you believe that? And so Moses comes down, and they're freaked out. And so he says, no, you have to put a veil over your face so that we don't have to see the face of the one who saw the glory of the Father. And the thing about it is, is if you remember the story, or if you want to go back and read through this, it wasn't even like this that Moses had seen. Well, as they go on, you know, and Peter makes this statement about building a tabernacle for these guys, uh, he was still speaking when God cut him off, this cloud, this voice from this cloud, and that's how we know it's God the Father, right? As you think about all of the Old Testament on this cloud that went before them, a pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day. If you think back to uh, Moses on the mountain and this cloud of glory overshadowing them, we know it's the Father. And we also know it's the Father because he calls him as my, my beloved son. There's some dead giveaways in the text is, is what I'm saying. Okay, so this voice comes from the cloud, cuts him off and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Isn't that a message for us this morning? Now, this isn't the message of today's message, really, but this is a freebie for you. Maybe we should just be quiet and listen to God more. Maybe instead of us running our mouths all the time, we should just find a still, secret, silent place to get on our knees before God and open our hearts to his word and just say, lead me, Father. This is what God tells them to do. He says, this is my son. He is the one whose words I have put in his mouth. Do you remember what we talked about there? about in Deuteronomy, I'm going to raise up a prophet for you and I'm going to put my words in his mouth. This is Christ. He says, this is my son. Shut your mouth and listen to him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were terrified. This happens all throughout the Old Testament too. When you come into God's presence, even the presence of one of his angels, you fall on your face as if a dead man, that's the way that I would look at this, rigid rigor mortis sets in, you fall face down. And what happens always if you are one of the chosen of God, he comes to you and he says, don't fear. And they have the experience of having Jesus come to them personally, touch them, and say, rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, there was no mistake about who God was talking about. It was only Jesus. So they came down and they were confused, right? We're going to cover this really quickly, but they came down and they were confused because they saw Elijah and they said, oh, I thought Elijah was supposed to come. 
uh, Jesus tells them that what they were actually talking about is, is John the Baptist. If you remember Malachi chapter 4, uh, he, he talks about when, the, when this Messiah is going to come. Okay, so Malachi chapter 4, it's a, it's a short chapter if you want to write that down. It's 1 through 6, the verses there. But in verse 5, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so this is what they're thinking. Wasn't Elijah supposed to come first? And Jesus corrects them, and he tells them, as he already did tell them in Matthew 11. In fact, at the end of that, he says, He who has ears, let him hear. So apparently, the disciples were not listening. I hope that we are this morning. He tells them in Matthew 11, 11 through 5, that this John the Baptist, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Now, I can't pretend like I understand all of this context. Was, was John the Baptist the reincarnation of Elijah? Absolutely not. But this is the fulfillment. But here's the point. The point isn't about who Elijah is. The point isn't that he met with Moses and Elijah and had some kind of long-distance heavenly Skype call with these people. The point is, is that Jesus is the fulfillment. We see the two people who are supposed to represent the law and the prophets there with Jesus And God the Father says, my son is not on equal playing ground with these two. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And it is Christ who is transfigured. Hebrews 1.3 says, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. That's our king. John 17.5 says, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. God and Jesus and the Spirit in perfect harmony, Jesus knew the glory of the Father before this foundation of this world was even laid. And yet this same Jesus dies for you. John 17, 22 through 24, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Do you understand that verse? That the glory that Jesus has will one day be also attributed to you. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 18, I encourage you to read that. He says now in verse 18, and we all with unveiled faces. He's talking about Moses here. He says because Jesus was born fully God, fully man, he's, he has cut through that veil. The reason that Moses wore a veil is because he had been in and with the Holy of Holies and the regular folk couldn't handle it, so there was a veil. And now, fast forward to when Jesus dies. Do you remember what happened on the cross when he was crucified? The veil was rent asunder, if you want to use the King James speakology, right? And so it was rent asunder from top to bottom. Ne'er shall the twain ever meet. I don't know, whatever. But here's what he says in verse 18. And we, with these now unveiled faces, now have the ability to behold the glory of the Lord. And he says, and we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Yes, that's, somebody got it. I don't know who. But the fact of the matter is, our king is a king of glory. And he's not to be compared with the law. He's not to be compared with the prophets. Jesus is the fulfillment. You know these different scriptures where all, all scripture finds their yes in Christ. You know, here's the fact of the matter. I don't know if you're walking through the darkness of the valley of the shadow of death. I don't know if you're really caught up with, with politics. I don't know if you're 
having marriage issues. I don't know if you're having health issues. I, I don't know what's going on in your walk right now, but I can tell you this. In the darkest of your nights, look to the shining beacon of Christ's glory. It is as a lighthouse on the shores of this world that you may not shipwreck your faith to keep your eyes upon the glory of our King. And he is worthy of all praise. The second thing I think this text talks about and shows us is the King's power. Our King is not a... Now listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a statement and somebody's going to take it wrong and they're going to be all upset with me, so I'm just going to preface this by saying, one, just get over that, okay? And then two, this has no bearing on any political standing that I have. I recorded a, a uh, commercial of one of, one of uh, I'm not even going to tell you the name, so there. This, uh, I recorded a commercial of a candidate before the election. And this individual said that they would protect us from every catastrophe, anytime, always, without exception. And I saw that once, and I laughed out loud. And at least it was there, and I said, next time that commercial's coming on, I'm videotaping that commercial. Because what an idiot. This is the only king that has power. This is the only king that can do all those things and can back up that kind of claim. Please turn to Mark chapter 9. Hopefully I gave you enough time that you read the screen and you were able to do that. But Mark chapter 9, 14 through 29, is the, is the, the parallel with what we've seen in Matthew 17, but I think it gives some extra things that I want to talk about. So we're going to read this, but we're going to read through it uh, at a high speed. So please join with me. 14. And when they came to the disciples... They saw a great crowd around them, the disciples arguing with them. Not good right there, right? Church leaders, be, be aware of that lesson. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I, excuse me, so I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire or into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If I can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I picture this father falling on his knees if he wasn't already. I picture this father with tears in his eyes, on his legs, with arms outstretched, possibly grasping at the Savior's robe and pleading with a broken voice. And when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him 
and never enter him again. And after crying out with, and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. He arose, and when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Of course they wouldn't ask that publicly, would they? Especially because in the next chapter they're going to argue about who's the greatest. Uh, number 29, and, and he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And some manuscripts, and in your copy, depending on what you have, some add and fasting. So prayer and fasting. Matthew 20, uh, he rebukes them. So you can turn back to Matthew 17, 20 if you want to now. Uh, he says, because of your little faith. That's the reason Jesus said you couldn't cast out because of your little faith. And he goes on to say that if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, nothing will be impossible for you. You see, Jesus endures our unbelief. And he does so (coughs) with a great sense of patience. You don't have to raise your hands physically. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I, but I do want to ask the question. And so in your hearts and in your minds, I want you to answer it truthfully. How many of you can relate to this, this poor father here who says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief because I'm going to be honest and bold before you. I, I sure can. These people's belief and their spiritual perversity were a burden to Jesus. How long am I supposed to bear with you? You wicked and twisted generation, he says in Matthew 17, 17. Faithless, twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? Their unbelief and their spiritual poverty or perversity was a burden to him. I wonder how must Jesus feel in today's world? But not only does he endure our unbelief, he meets their needs. So yes, he's burdened by them, but... He doesn't just leave them. Jesus says to him, to this man in Mark 9, if you can. Jesus is saying here that there are infinite resources open to the believer, and he is calling on those who follow him to exercise the faith that they have. He says in Mark, and he says in Matthew, he says in Mark, if you can, all things are possible with those who believe. He says in Matthew that nothing is impossible if you have small faith, even this face the size of a mustard seed. So I would ask you this morning, now, don't come up to me afterwards and ask me if I'm a name it, claim it preacher, because that's not what I am. But I am here to push you a little bit and make you feel uncomfortable and ask you this morning, what is your level of faith in Christ to do miraculous and wondrous deeds? And then lastly, Jesus enables our ministry. Jesus tells these disciples why it was they couldn't drive out the Spirit in verse 20, and then depending on your copy, verse 21, he says, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll be able to say to this mountain, move from here to there. He says, because of your little faith, and in Matthew, or in Mark, he says, this only comes out through prayer and fasting. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that he upholds the universe with the word of his power. But the fact is, is that this is a striking illustration of the faith that is, for Jesus, not a matter of intellectual assent, but rather of practical reliance on a living God. It 
See, I, I, I think that there's a lot that's not accomplished for the kingdom today because we just simply don't believe that God will adequately supply the power that is needed to undertake the various activities that we are seeking to do. 1 Thessalonians 3.10 and 2 Thessalonians 1.3 ought to be an encouragement to you, though, because we're not alone in that. Even in the first century church, there was issues. Uh, 10 says, we pray earnestly night and day, see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Second uh, Thessalonians 1.3 says, be, uh, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And so I want to pose this question to you this morning. What does your faith workout routine look like? And some of you are sitting there thinking to yourself, I have no idea what he just said or what he's talking about at all. And that's okay. Let me help you with that. Do you pray? Do you record your prayers and expect to answer to your prayers? Do you pray seeking God's will or do you just pray? How much time in Scripture do you spend trying to seek God's will before you decide what God's will is? When you pray, do you lift prayers to God, not in fists, but in open hands, understanding that He is going to either put in or take out whatever He wills to do? And I guess, maybe I've said this already, but I think it bears saying again, do you pray actually expecting God to do anything? Or are you just talking to the man on the ceiling? John 14, 12 says, Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Which means, if we have the Spirit, that's why this is good. James 4, 1 through 4, you know it, but in case you forget it, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. See, the fact of the matter is much is not accomplished for the kingdom because we simply don't believe God is adequately going to supply the spiritual power that is necessary to do that. On the flip side, we also, we must recognize the limitations of this promise of Christ. With faith, nothing is impossible. Say to this mountain, get up and move and go into the ocean. If that's God's will, then yes, by all means, cast that mountain. However, if it's not God's will, then we are doing what James says and we're asking wrongly to spend it on our own passions. And so there is a dichotomy. And it's not my job to make you feel okay with it. It's just my job to tell you about it and remind you of it and encourage you that Jesus Christ supplies infinite power for you to live by faith. Yes, okay, thank you. It is by faith, it is by God's power that the mouths of lions are shut. It is by faith, it is by God's power that people can be thrown into a fire and not even smell like smoke. It is by faith and by God's power that people can walk through a sea as if on dry ground. Don't miss that part of the text. It wasn't even squishy. I'm serious. And how often do we in our 21st century with high-speed internet not think that Jesus is able to do far and more and exceedingly abundantly than anything that we can ask for. Let God be found true and every man a liar. 
So the third thing then is Jesus' our king's humility. Because here's the facts. He just revealed glory upon which none of us can even fathom in his transfiguration. He has power to uphold the universe at the same time as heal a boy with a demon at the same time as to, you know, speak words to other people. Uh, Jesus is the ultimate multitasker, right? God knows every hair of every head of every person in this room right now and never loses count. Although some of yours might be falling out as we speak. But the fact of the matter is our king is also one of humility. Our king is one of service. 22 through 27 here. Now, I want to start you in 24. I understand we're going a little bit out of context. Bear with me, please. But 24 through 27, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. Now, that's a bad way to ask a question, by the way. Very manipulative. Does your teacher not pay the tax? Uh, yes, says Peter. Peter doesn't know. Peter's assuming. Peter just saw the transfiguration. He already can't keep his foot out of his mouth. But he came into the house, and before he could say anything, Jesus spoke to him first, which is also interesting, saying, What do you think, Simon? For who do kings of the earth take toll from the tax, from their sons or from others? And he said, From others. Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook. Just the hook. Take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel, which is, by the way, enough to pay for two people. I know we have trouble with this old school money. Take that and give it to them for me and yourself. Here's what's cool about this. This is only recorded here. Do you know why? Who's Matthew? He's a tax collector. You think this meant something to him? So he was far and away aware of all things monetary. This is only recorded here, and it's so interesting that that Matthew does that, but this is the only place that this miracle is recorded, and this is a very unique miracle indeed. This is the only time that Jesus performed a miracle for his own personal need, although Peter was included in it. This is the only time recorded that Jesus actually did this for himself, paying a tax on his own behalf. This is the only time that it is a miracle using money, and this is the only time that a miracle had a result that was not recorded because it is assumed that Peter is going to be obedient. But think of this crazy, just think of this. In, a, in the physical realm that we live in, this is what had to happen. Firstly, someone had to lose a coin into the water. Secondly, some kind of a fish had to eat that coin and retain it in its mouth long enough to be fished for. Also, it must have a mouth big enough to also retain the coin without getting swallowed and bite a hook, a hook that in all appearances had no bait on it, and then to be caught and in this natural way by a fisherman who would have thought this absolutely absurd, this is no way it can be happened by human management. And Jesus does this, why? So he wouldn't give offense. Jesus did this so he would be above reproach. 
See, what Jesus is saying here is the king doesn't take tax from his sons. You know, the Bible tells us that we are children of God by adoption. That means he doesn't require tax from you. That means you don't have to work to earn salvation. It's free. It's a gift. Think of the foolishness of these people asking Jesus to pay the temple tax. Pay pay tax on on where my Father's glory dwells? Because it just doesn't make sense. And what he tells Peter here is he asks him as he comes in, he says, is it normal? I mean, who do kings take tax from? Do they take it from their own children or do they take it from foreigners? And the answer is foreigners. But this is how humble our king is. To give no offense, he still pays a tax. In fact, our king is so humble, he himself doesn't have the amount of money necessary to pay the tax. And so instead, using his God-given right, as the first Adam had, to put all subjection under his control, he calls upon nature itself to provide the need of the king of the universe, who then, if you will travel with me, humbles himself even farther to take on the cross. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. You see here, as often, Jesus tells them that he is going to be raised. The fact is, is that Jesus never says that he is going to raise himself. He always says the Father is going to do the raising. Even in his godliness and equality with God, he saw it not as something to be grasped, but instead took on the form of a servant, even in the fact of his resurrection. He would allow the Father to do the action and humbly submit to his leadership. Not to mention humbly submitting to these false, wicked leaders that would be the ones to actually perpetrate this crucifixion. It is crazy that through centuries, and even these same disciples and sometime later, that this is the heart of our faith, that Christ Jesus was crucified, died, and raised. And yet, at this time, they were greatly distressed. And so I want to ask you this morning, seeing our great God, seeing our king in this transfiguration, seeing him in his glory, seeing him in his power, and yet still seeing him in his humility. I want to ask you what your response to this is. Because the fact of the matter is that Jesus reveals without question who he is. And so I want to ask you to come and adore him. And here's how I think that we can do that if we look at our response. I think, firstly, we should look at his worth. Jesus is worth everything to you, I hope and I pray. There is no treasure on this planet that can surpass the riches of his kingdom and the riches of his presence. Secondly, if we're paying attention, we ought to listen to his word. Second Peter, uh, Peter writes this section. He never forgets this time of the transfiguration. <laughs> 
He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's talking about the transfiguration. He says, For when, we re- when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard the very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on that holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that is why we too, like Peter, should learn to listen to his word. Also, we should live for his renown, for his name is worthy. We should proclaim his praise, prepare for persecution, for it is coming, and yet still practice patient piety. And then lastly, because he is alive, because our king has now been eternally transformed, and he is sitting at his father in his glory that he knew from before the foundation of the world that he now knows and is now waiting, as it says, we now with unveiled faces are being transformed from one glory, this glory of this physical body created in the image of God, into the glory of our eternal bodies that will one day be with him forever. We can long for his return. Because 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So here's what I want to do for you. I want to give you the opportunity to, with fresh eyes and with fresh fire and with fresh indwelling of the Holy Spirit, to behold your God. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask these guys in the back to hit the mute button because of legal reasons. We can't uh, just let canned music go out to the internet. They'll find us and hold our feet to the fire. But for everybody who came this morning, I want for you to sing with me and bring your hearts as a living sacrifice before our God. Think of our Christ Jesus as he was transfigured before his disciples, and as one day he will come in his glory, and you will see him as he is face to face. Let's sing.